Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Bad on Paper Podcast. I'm Becca Freeman. And I'm Olivia Mentor. And it is our first book club of 2024. And today we are discussing 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals by Oliver Berkman. And I hope you read along with us. But even if you didn't, I think this conversation will be really interesting to listen to, kind of talking about mortality. What we want out of life. <laughs> <laughs> just small questions. Yeah, just those two tiny things. But before we get into that, let's do some highs and lows. Tell me your high. So I was going to talk about this floral chaise lounge that I found for $70 at the thrift store that I'm very excited about that I posted about. But you know what? I'm going to scrap that. My high is that I think I am getting my spark back as a human being. Like this month, just the past two weeks have been so good. I feel so much more excited about life than I have in a really long time. I feel calmer. I don't know. I just feel a lot more like me. I don't know how, like it's, it's a thing where you don't realize that it was gone until it comes back. (laughs) The spark. I am thrilled for you. Is there anything that happened or that changed that made the spark come back? Or you think it just was a natural ebb and flow? I mean, I think partially it's that I've been doing the things I set out to do, which of course it's only January, but in terms of exercising, cooking for myself, but also just being a little bit nicer to myself in general when things don't go the way I want them to, which I have a lot of thoughts on that subject, which we're going to talk about in this episode. But I just, I don't know. I feel a lot better. Like it makes me kind of emotional. I don't know. I just feel really good. So thank you for being excited about that too. Very excited. What's your high? Directly contrary to my New Year's resolution to be more thoughtful about the time and money spent on travel, I then immediately impulse booked a trip to Boston last weekend because I am on my time off while my agent is reading the draft of my book. I have a couple of weeks off and one of my best friends had a second baby And I really wanted to meet her while she was still squishy before she got into the squirmy phase where she doesn't want to be held. So I went up for 48 hours. I booked it with points. I stayed in a hotel. I had the best time. It was the perfect little weekend. It was kind of snowy. It was a weekend where I wouldn't have done anything at home. I would have just stayed home because it was so cold and snowy. And it was so nice to see so many of my college friends, even though I just saw a lot of them in Maine for New Year's. It was so fun to hang out with my friend's two kids. It was nice to stay in a hotel. I feel like there's no dishes to do. There's no errands. It's just like, hey, I have the morning with nothing to do. I'm going to read in bed. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So it was wonderful. It was just like a nice little trip. Oh, nice. It looked very very like life affirming and just happy and joyful. So I feel like that's always worth it, whether or not it was you know, thoughtful. It is thoughtful travel in that regard, I think, because you got so much out of it. It is. Yeah. I think it's also a muscle that I need to learn to figure out what are the things that feel good, even if they're like frivolous or silly versus, you know, when do I want to say no to a trip to save for something bigger? Yeah. I like that. Intentional travel. Yeah. What about on the low side? Based on what you have in this outline, I have literally no prediction about what this is. For the listeners, I like to just sometimes just spice it up with the outline and I just put in 
Well, I mean, it's the truth. So my low, it says bird species variety, which I'm sure is what everyone listening is expecting. But okay, so over Christmas, Jake got me a bird buddy, which in case you don't know, or you are not subjected to the 9,000 targeted Instagram ads, you probably will be now. I apologize. But it's a birdhouse that has like a motion activated camera. So whenever a bird stops by to get a little snack, the camera goes on and you get a little notification. It sends you a thing and it identifies the species, oh. which I think is very cool. Technology. Yes. And I just was enamored with this thing. And so Jake got me one. Very nice. And look, the thrill I had setting up the first day was unlike anything else I've ever experienced. Do you think that's where your spark came back? <laughs> it's definitely related to the birds. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Because... The first visitor was a tufted titmouse, which, yes, this is the second episode in a row I'm referencing a tufted titmouse. Again, probably not on your bingo card. And they're adorable. They're like these little fluffy things and they have these little poofs on the top of their head. I was like, oh, that's great. And then the next day was another tufted titmouse. The next day, tufted titmouse. The next day, you've guessed it, another tufted titmouse. And so how many I'm times can you say tufted titmouse in this episode? Too many. I mean, Jake and I have shortened it colloquially, colloquially, I can't say that word, shortened it between us to just titty. Hmm. But I'm not going to just throw out that word here nonstop. Anyway, I just want some variety. Like occasionally we'll get something like yesterday we got a goldfinch, but the titmouses, the titmice, they're just overtaking it. And I just, I'm looking for like, I'm not looking for a parrot or something, but like, you know, cardinal, maybe. Do you think this is a seasonal problem or a regional problem? I mean, I'm going to have to wait and see, but I'm beginning to resent them. So oh, I don't know. Wow. You have <laughs> a bird grudge. Uh, <laughs> what is your low? I don't think I have one. Two weeks in a row. Yeah, I I mean, I'm on this break. I have time off. Who, who am I to complain? My weird sinus thing, which I think was a sinus infection, has cleared. I'm good, man. Great. Let's take an ad break and then we will dive into this book. This episode is sponsored by ZocDoc. You know, when you run into that one person from an old job or from college that you are just never going to be comfortable enough with to have a real conversation, maybe they'll ask you how you're doing or what your love life is like or how that new job is going, but you're never actually going to feel relaxed enough with them to tell them what's actually going on. And even if you do, you just know they wouldn't get it or maybe they wouldn't even listen. And while this might be the case for many people you run into, this should absolutely not be how any of us feel while talking to our doctors. Enter ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who make you feel comfortable enough to be open and honest about your symptoms and concerns and actually listen to you. And we're not talking about a few. We're talking about tens of thousands of doctors, all with verified patient reviews so you can make sure the vibes are vibing before you ever meet IRL. With ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. One of my personal goals for January is to book all of my yearly physicals and appointments and skin checks and get them on the calendar and just feel good about 
life. (laughs) And I absolutely plan on using ZocDoc to do so just like I have in the past. Go to ZocDoc.com slash BOP and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash B-O-P. ZocDoc.com slash B-O-P. All right, Olivia, you have done such a phenomenal job with this outline. I feel like you should do the honor of reading the quick summary. Oh, sure. Well, I should say that I got the summary from a website called Blinkist. So the summary I did not come up with. I wanted to credit it correctly. But 4,000 Weeks by Oliver Berkman is a thought-provoking book that challenges us to reevaluate how we spend our limited time on Earth. Berkman offers practical advice on how to embrace uncertainty overcome anxiety, and lead a more meaningful life. So I have read this one before. I read it on my Kindle, I guess, two years ago. I think it came out in maybe 2021. So that would be three years ago, maybe 2022. I don't know. Anyway, I've read it before. This was my second time and I have some interesting thoughts, but it was your first time. So what did you think? How did it compare to whatever you were expecting? Okay, so it's interesting because I started this book last January, and I abandoned it. So there had been talk last January of making January our nonfiction book club of the year. And I started this, I think I maybe, was it last year I read Atomic Habits? Anyway, I like, I always get really excited about reading nonfiction books in January, and then it just fizzles pretty quickly. And so I made it to maybe like the fourth or fifth chapter. I made it to the part where he was talking about the really dense German philosopher who was also a Nazi. And I was like, I put it down and I just never picked it back up. (laughs) And I don't know, for whatever reason, to quote the last ad, the vibes weren't vibing for me. And it's so funny because this year I picked it up and it felt like he was putting words to so many things that I was feeling and giving empirical evidence or, you know, scholarly research to back these things up, it felt like he was taking concerns I directly had in my head and verbalizing them in a way I couldn't. I was just highlighting the shit out of this book. I was so engrossed by it. Engrossed is maybe the wrong word. I probably read it like a chapter at a time over the course of many days. Like I'll usually read nonfiction in the morning as opposed to in the evening. But I I was just nodding the whole time. I don't know. How did you feel? Yeah, I get that. I feel like this would be the perfect book where if you're just looking to read like 15, 30 pages in a morning, just to like get your head in a good space for the the day ahead and and it's nonfiction, I would suggest this. But like I said, I had read this a couple years ago, read it on my Kindle. So I couldn't like you know, physically highlight or tab things the way I did this time around, which I didn't know if I was going to, but man, like the book is filled with tabs, like the entire thing. Actually, when I read it the first time, the thing that stuck with me for whatever reason is this anecdote he mentions in the book about this Harvard professor's instruction to her students every year, which is to go pick a painting, stare at it for three hours. The only thing you're allowed to do other than stare at it is go to the bathroom if you have to. I remember and then you talking I about made this. That. Was it your goal? <laughs> yeah. I made it one of my goals for the next year. And then I promptly did not do it, which anyway, I couldn't for the life of me when I reread this, think of why I wanted to do it so badly. And upon rereading it, I realized like, 
The essence of this entire book, and we'll talk more about this, is about trying to control something you cannot control, which is time. (laughs) And I am pretty much the worst at trying to control things I can't control and getting really angry when I can't. And so I think the painting thing was like this exercise in just being with something and you can't do anything. You can't distract yourself. Never did it, but it stuck with me for whatever reason. But yeah, so so those are some of my thoughts. It's funny because I think we might have taken away, having read through the, the questions that you put here, I feel like we may have taken away slightly different things where I feel like the thing that resonated most with me was kind of the image of your to-do list as a conveyor belt. And, mm-hmm. you know, the faster you clear it, the more things pop up behind it. I Whenever anything has to do with a conveyor belt, I'm always picturing that episode of I Love Lucy where they work in the chocolate factory. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, that's just like the perfect analogy of like, the more efficient you are, it just keeps getting faster. There's no end point. And I think I'm also feeling this because I'm on this break right now where I'm like, oh, great. I'm in this end point of like, I should just be totally relaxed. And I don't feel that way. So I feel like the idea of getting to the other side of your to-do list for this mythical future where you then don't have anything to do is kind of a mindset that I've always had. And hearing the conveyor belt analogy was so powerful. And then I also Mm -hmm. feel like I'm having a lot of thoughts about social media and phone usage. And I feel like that was also something that stuck out to me and where I was kind of applying it maybe even to places where he didn't apply it. I thought it was really interesting because he talks about social media usage in here, and it sounds like he identifies as like a former Twitter addict. But even when he was at the peak of his Twitter usage, I think he said he would only log on for like 20 minutes a day. And there is something that I think is really interesting. I do think there's a gender divide. And this isn't, you know, hard and fast, but I do think women use social media very differently than men. So there were some pieces that I was like connecting to social media that like he wasn't. But I was like, oh, yes, Mm -hmm. in my experience, I could apply this against this. This should have been the episode where you delete TikTok off your phone. It's gone. (laughs) That would have been perfect. I was reading and I every like 10 pages or so, I would just feel the urge to pick up my phone as one does. And I would be reading a chapter about that. And I would be like, oh, that's how easily distracted or distractible we are. But I too thought a lot about social media and how I don't want that to be how I spend my 4,000 weeks. <laughs> well, yeah, like I, I really, or whatever is left. Sure. You know, if you run into, I mean, she's dead. So I guess in the afterlife you run into, or if you run into Mary Oliver and she's like, what did you do with your one wild and precious life? And you're like, I scrolled a lot. <laughs> I know I every video of a cat. <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, I don't think it's realistic to be like, get rid of social media entirely, but there has to be some sort of a balance. But I'm curious about what you thought about the number 4,000 weeks. Like when you heard it, were you like, that feels right? Or were you like, oh my God, that's such a finite number? I was horrified and I was reading it with my heart in my throat. And I feel like that might be part of the reason why I put the book down last year was because it was causing so much existential angst versus now the fact has had some time to penetrate and set in. And so this time it was a little less shocking. But that feels insultingly small. Yeah, it's kind of horrifying. My first thought 
I think I had this the first time I read it. I definitely had it this time was I was like, I should calculate how many weeks I have left. And then I, and I was like, I should write that on my to-do list every day. Oh God. kind of defeats the purpose. <laughs> and then I thought, no, 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 I should actually cut it back because, you know, I should make it. And then I was like, whoa, whoa, Olivia, you could actually have no time left. <laughs> you could die tomorrow. And that's the whole point of the book. And yeah, it is horrifying. But weirdly, over the course of the book, I found it became way less scary somehow, even though they talk about death more and more <laughs> as the book goes on. Well, it's such an important reminder that I don't think about in everyday life. And I can't remember if this Confucius, this Confucius quote must be in this book somewhere. Like it's like the quote of like, every man has two lives. The second starts when he realizes he has just one. Having just read it in the last 10 hours, I don't think it is, but, or maybe it is, but that's pretty much the point of the book. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, you know, when I make decisions in my day-to-day life, I'm never like, hey, if you died next week, how would you feel about this? But throughout the book, being reminded about it, it's like, okay, thinking about, you know, not your day-to-day decisions, but your macro level, what do I want? And what do I want my life to look like in the context of constantly being reminded about how finite your life is, was I think really powerful. Yeah. I think so too. I mean, I think I want to think about that more, maybe, because it might help me feel a little less like I need to control everything. But not too much, because then I think you get panicked in another way. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Like I'm going to die of cancer because I have a headache. Yeah. I I mean, that, that, but also, if you put it on your to do list and you're like thinking about it every day, I think I might go a little bit mad. Maybe. I mean, you know, it always helped me to think about like, I'm going to die one day because I have anxiety about everything as we've just unpacked here. But I have a lot of anxiety about flying before I get on a plane. I'm just like, I'm going to die. I'm going to die on this plane. I'm flying tomorrow and even whatever. We've been through this. But when I'm on the plane to think about the fact that like, if I just have this one life, I don't want to not do something because I'm afraid of this minute outcome. It helps and it comforts me in a strange way. Let's take a step back from the existential. I want to talk about something (laughs) really lovely in this book, which is the concept of deep time, which is kind of defined as where you become so invested in an activity or you're doing something that time stops being meaningful to you. And you're like deeper in an experience for it. And that could be like an experience of boredom of, you know, being a kid and just minutes feel like hours, or it could be, you know, you're looking at something that's so impressive that your time loses meaning. But I'm curious, do you have any memories or moments that you associate with deep time? I think the best example I can really think of is this, is I feel like when I'm traveling somewhere new, I always have a moment like this where I'm like struck by being in a new place with all these people who have their own individual lives in these like, you know, in a little town in Tuscany or wherever I am. And, you know, if it's beautiful or there's history or something that always sort of emphasizes the point. But I guess times like that, yeah, I always feel that way. And then daily life, I think, times of just like childlike joy. Like the other day, Jake tried to convince me to go sledding. And I was like, I don't want to go sledding. (laughs) I don't want to throw myself down a hill. Like it's not going to end well. I'm not built for this. And anyway, I did it. And it was just 
so lovely and so fun. And I just had this moment of like pure joy where I wasn't thinking about how that moment was going to like benefit me down the line. It just was. And it was great. What about you? I was going to say travel as well. I feel like a lot of travel experiences and especially I think part of it is being out of your routine, not having any pressures of a to-do list and especially days where you just either wander or there's like one activity that is seeing something or doing something. So it's not like, okay, we have a lot to get through. So either the feeling of wandering or the feeling of just like everything is oriented around this one thing. I feel like travel always gives me that feeling. The other thing that I think I associate this with is it's with something social of going out to dinner, being at a party, being in the company of people that you enjoy so much, you're not looking at your phone. And all of a sudden you say to yourself like, oh, I I got here at at eight. It must be like nine. And you're like, it's one in the morning. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's a really lovely feeling. It is. Yeah. So something else I wanted to talk about is kind of something you alluded to earlier, I think, but there's this chapter in the book called essentially stop trying to clear the decks, which is this thing of like, okay, before I do this thing that takes up a lot of my attention and time, I'm going to get done a hundred smaller tasks, which is really just a form of procrastination. But it's something that I do a lot and often I'll do. And then I'll be like, well, there's no more time to do the thing that I was trying to make time for. Did you relate to this or do you think the advice to stop doing this is useful? I think this is one of my biggest crutches. I saw myself reflected back at me in this book. So I think of it in two ways. So first, I feel like I need to clean my inbox out in the morning before I can do anything productive because I'm like, who's waiting on me? Or what if there's something important? Or I just need to get it down to not inbox zero, but you know, no unread messages. And I'm constantly guilty of this. And I saw, unrelated to this book, I saw somebody that I follow on Instagram, Amy Estes, who I think you follow as well. Oh, love Amy so much. She shared this article a few weeks ago that is from years ago. And she said she constantly thinks about it. It's an article by the writer Melissa Phoebos, who I've never read her work, but I've listened to a lot of podcast interviews with her. She's very body and outspoken. And the title of the article is, Do You Want to Be Known for Your Writing or for Your Swift Email Responses? <laughs> and uh, Drops mic. <laughs> this, this article knocked me on my ass where I was like, oh my God. And it's something I've been trying to be more conscious of this year so far in is this just in my inbox and I feel compelled to respond to it immediately or is this actually important? Right. And I'm not very good at it yet, but I'm trying to be thoughtful about it. And the other thing I've been thinking about is, so I use this extension called Boomerang on my Gmail and it has the ability to set office hours. So it basically pauses your inbox. So no new emails come in outside of whatever you set your office hours to be. And I've kind of been like, maybe I should turn that on. So when I'm not theoretically supposed to be working, I'm not even tempted because I get very few urgent emails. It's true. I mean, I personally try not to reply to an email unless it is truly urgent from my phone. If I'm not on my computer, I just leave it. 
And honestly, I feel like I benefit from letting things percolate in my brain a little bit. <laughs> like, and not just being like, okay, let's send this off right this second. But you're very efficient. I'm, I always admire it. Efficient. I'm like, oh, I should really get back to this sooner. <laughs> and then the other thing about clearing the decks is I feel like I fall into the trap of quantity versus quality. So checking off five things off of my to-do list feels better than doing the one thing that is way more important than all five combined. Yeah. Because you get more, <laughs> you get more crosses off. And so I am guilty of this both as a natural inclination and also as a procrastination method. What about you? Yeah. I mean, I relate to all of that. I think something really interesting that I think we're going to talk about in a bit if we get to it. But another thing about like checking off those little things and avoiding the big thing is that if it's something like, you know, writing and then five, you know, emails you have to send or whatever, it's really easy to perfect the five emails. It may not be so easy to perfect Mm. the writing. And so the emails are going to go exactly how you want them to go. You know, you're going to sign the document, you're going to send off the contract, whatever. It's going to be the way it's supposed to be. The writing or a bigger project or something more complicated may not be. Yeah. (laughs) And I really liked the parts in the book where it talked about that. Yeah. It talks about the joy of missing out. So the JOMO, the opposite of FOMO. (laughs) And I really like this concept culturally in general. Do you have any examples of things where you've experienced joy of missing out? I think, okay, one, and this is kind of similar to the example the author gives, which is that like, when you marry someone, you're saying no to all these other things and you're and you're saying yes to like building a partnership where you stick around. And I think sometimes in my life, especially in my early 20s, I felt like I was in this long-term relationship and everyone else was just like fancy and free. And I was like, you know, should I be doing this? Should I be doing that? And now I see that like there's so much value and joy in having a long-term partnership. And if Jake and I do have kids, I'm like, I value so much that we'll have had so long just us before that. But on the other hand, like I didn't have single in New York City. That wasn't a phase. (laughs) And, And that's okay, I think. What about you? Well, I have a much less deep answer about Jomo. I feel like I'm trying... I'm all for less deep. Well, I'm trying... To, I mean, I think a lot of this has to do with my travel resolution of being more thoughtful and being like, what am I okay missing out on? Because so much of it has to do with the fact that people I love are going on trips and I'm like, oh, I want to come. And it's like, how will this enrich me? Is this how I want to spend my money and time? But a more simplified way is I feel like I am very inclined to say yes to social plans because I'm I'm very extroverted. I enjoy social plans and I'm really guilty of saying yes to things. So I'm like, yeah, I'd love to support, especially events where I'm like, oh yeah, I love this person. I want to support them. Or this sounds interesting. And I say yes to things and then it comes around and then I kind of curse my past self where I'm like, why did I say yes to this? And so I'm trying to adapt. And and this is not my own advice. This is like definitely from another book or from somebody. The filter of, would you say yes to this? If it was today. Hmm. I would never say yes to anything. (laughs) Well, and maybe that's the difference where this is for me who maybe has a tendency to overcommit to things. So, you know, would you say yes 
if it was today and then using that as the filter and then being like, okay, you know, when it rolls around instead of being like, oh, I could have been doing this being like having a night to myself or using it in a different way that is more thoughtful than reactive. Yeah, absolutely. I really like that. Well, let's take a quick break to talk about my hair. (laughs) So I feel like through my whole adult life, I've been in this state of constant experimentation and trial and error with my skincare and my beauty routine. And it's expensive And you buy a lot of stuff that doesn't work, which is frustrating. But the one area of my routine that I feel like I have on lockdown is my hair care routine. And for the past four years, I've been using my custom formula shampoo and conditioner from Pros, And it is honestly such a relief to have something that works well, keeps working well, and I can just rebuy it on autopilot without having to worry about it. And since starting Pros. My hair is so much healthier, so much shinier, and fuller than ever. It all starts with our in-depth hair quiz. You answer questions about your styling routine and hair goals, but also about some less expected things like your exercise routine, eating habits, and hair damage level. With those answers, they analyze over 85 personal factors to create your perfect formula. Also, just a bit of unsolicited advice, get the Corsica scent. It's crafted with peonies and Anjou pears and makes every shower smell like a luxurious Italian spa experience. The other thing I love about pros is that my hair has never gotten used to it, even after four years. And I think that's in large part due to the review and refine feature. So after every order, you tell them how they did and they can make tiny tweaks to make your formula even better. And it's risk-free. If you're not 100% positive pros is the best hair care you've ever had, they'll take the products back, no questions asked. Custom made-to-order hair care from pros has your name all over it. Take your free in-depth hair consultation and get 50% off your first subscription order today, plus 15% off and free shipping every subscription order after that. Go to pros.com slash BOP That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash B-O-P for your free in-depth hair consultation and 50% off your first subscription order. So one interesting anecdote in the book or chapter that I didn't remember at all from reading the first time was this sort of story uh, about Warren Buffett and his suggestion to make a list of 25 goals. Do you know which I, part I'm talking about? Oh my gosh. I was fascinated by this anecdote. It also comes with an Elizabeth Gilbert quote, which kind of sums it up, which is that you need to start saying no to the things in life that you want to do with the recognition that you have only one life. So essentially Warren Buffett's advice for getting things done, I think, was to write a list of 25 things in your life that you want to accomplish or focus on. And then only keep the first five. (laughs) The rest are the things you have to say no to in order to get those first five things done. Yeah, tell me how you felt about this. I think I object to this advice. And I think this is maybe oversimplified. I think it's a really fascinating way of thinking. And so Warren Buffett says that the 20 things you throw out are the things most at risk of distracting you from the five things that mean the most. And so therefore, you should not go anywhere near those so that you you can make sure to do the top five. And I think this makes sense. However, 
I think that this is predicated on those five things being such huge things of like winning an Olympic gold medal. Like, sure, you need to commit yourself in a way to winning an Olympic gold in Olivia. You're going to be an Olympic shot putter. Like, Mm. yeah, you I did do shot put in high school. Did you really? I mean, briefly, it was like, we're just going to throw Olivia in sports and see what sticks. And ultimately nothing did. But I'm really proud of my guessing (laughs) prowess. Yeah. So, you know, if you have a goal like that, I understand how that is a lifelong goal that requires a level of commitment that you cannot do these other things. And, you know, I think also for me, having decided that I don't want to be a parent, like that also frees up a lot of time. Like, I think some of your goals are very long-term lifelong goals, but I think there are other goals that are much shorter term. And so I don't think you have to be like, I can only do five things in my life and I have to object to number six through 25 of things that I am interested in, but maybe don't hit the top five. Like, and maybe this is just me not having deep enough goals, but I just, I I cannot think of five things that I would want to do in my life that would require such singular focus that I cannot do anything else. Yeah. I think I'm with you there. I also am like, well, how would you define those five things? Is it like abstract things? Like I want to be, you know, the best friend I can be or whatever. (laughs) Or is it like, I want to be an Olympic shot putter? You know, those are very different types of goals. However, the Elizabeth Gilbert part of it, where I think that you do need to say no to things in order to really go after what you actually want, I very much think is true. To give yourself a shot at that, I think you have to say no to something. But here's another thing is I think that we as humans are maybe not great at anticipating what achieving certain goals will feel like. Like, have you ever achieved something and then it is not felt as impactful or amazing as you thought it would? And so I think there's also a lot of value in experimentation and actioning off data of trying things and then being like, do I like this? Do I want more of this? As opposed to singularly pursuing five things that on paper you think are the most important things to you. And sure, maybe that is being a good parent. Maybe you have a singular gift of you need to cure cancer. I don't know. And, you know, in that case, maybe that is true. But I think there's a lot of cases where myself and, you know, people in general just want something because they think they should want it or because other people want it. And I think it would suck to go so far down that road to the exclusion of literally everything else and then realize it doesn't feel the way you thought it would. Also, it's kind of contradictory with maybe, I think, some of the other advice, which is like when they talked about hobbies in the book, doing things that you're not necessarily supposed to be good at or like the example of Rod Stewart and the toy train. Oh my God. That was also a fascinating anecdote. (laughs) There were many moments in this book where I just wondered, how does one go about writing a nonfiction book and collecting all of these anecdotes that tie into this? There were so many. I enjoyed them so much. I think it's part of why I found it like a generally pretty readable experience. But okay, I want to talk about this next point, which is that There's a section in the book about perfectionism, and I wanted to know if you consider yourself a perfectionist or not. Yes and no. I think that I'm, you know, over the midpoint on perfectionism. I'm closer to a perfectionist than I am the opposite, a non-perfectionist, a 
I don't know what <laughs> the opposite is. But I don't think I'm a full perfectionist. It makes me really uncomfortable to be bad at things, but I don't think I need to be always the best at things. So there's this example that he he brings up multiple times in the book about this architect who built the plans for this mosque and then burned them because it would never be as fantastic in real life as it was on paper or in his head. And I think that I don't put a lot of stock in the idea of something versus the execution. Like, I think even a shitty execution of that mosque is better than the perfect idea that lived in his head. And I think that's true of everything. And so maybe you can't execute it to the level that you envision, but it existing in general is better than just the idea of it to me. So I did not really relate to that anecdote. But did you? Oh, that's so funny. Yes, I... Yes. (laughs) In so many different ways, because... I wouldn't really consider myself a perfectionist. Like, I know that I'm not great at a lot of things. I was okay with, you know, a B growing up or an A minus or whatever. But I think I am a perfectionist in the sense that I have very elaborate ideas in my brain for how things will be. And I really commit to them and I like keep them with me for a long time. And when it it's not that, <laughs> I get really upset. Is the idea a feeling? Or is the idea like a full, like in this case, it's the blueprints for a mosque, which is like a tangible thing that he can see theoretically in 3D in his head. Like, are you picturing it that or are you just picturing the feeling of like what you want? No, I think it's like a 3D thing. Weirdly, this really made me think about, this whole book actually made me think a lot about issues I've had with my body and body image (laughs) growing up because a lot of it to me has a lot to do with like this future version of yourself. And so this anecdote really made me think of the fact growing up, I always pictured my wedding, getting married. And I always thought like, if I am not the skinniest version of myself that day, like take it, I don't want it. It's not going to be that good. I think that that kind of thinking, like honestly, it's something small, but then when you get to the wedding and you're not the skinniest you're ever going to be, that's still there. And it takes something away from it. And like, I don't want that. And of course I still got married and the wedding was still wonderful. And it's about the marriage and all of that. But it also made me think a lot about in the same sense, like parenthood and whether or not I want to have children in my mind, like if it's not going to be a certain way, which of course it's not because it's the most unpredictable thing ever that makes me really terrified. And I'm thinking like, if it's not going to look the way I want it to look, it's not going to feel the way I want to feel, then like, why risk that? And I'm tempted to just like throw the idea away altogether. Interesting. Well, you were saying that this book really made you think about a need for control. And is that what you're talking about? Or are there like other facets of it in the book as well? I mean, I think in general, just like I have in my head how I want it to be. And if it's not going to be that way, I just get really unsettled by it. And I I consider myself a, I don't know if I'd say I'm a laid back person, but like I'm a passive person, <laughs> which is interesting. But when it comes to things that are personal to me, I just, I want it to go a certain way. I want it to look a certain way. And I want my time to be used a certain way. And when it doesn't, I just feel anxious, I guess. And anyway, that's what I was thinking about a lot is just how much of this book was about like how much we try to 
control the passage of time and like make the most of it when like it just is what it is. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. Did you think about control at all? I mean, do you consider yourself someone who like wants to control the outcome of a future event? Or are you just more like, like you just said, like it's going to happen how it happens. And as long as it gets done, that's okay. I do have a control thing, but I think it's different than yours. And I think it's more about feeling anxious when my sense of control is taken away from me or feeling like I don't have control over something. And it's more in the minutia of something than it is in like, it wouldn't stop me from setting out, Mm -hmm. you know, but it would be something that I would grapple with in the moment. Okay. So, okay. That's too existential. So... (laughs) One place where I identify with what you're saying is I do this thing, which is like one of my worst traits. Whenever I'm on vacation and we do not have plan for where to go to dinner and we're just like, we'll just find somewhere. We'll just pop in. I will walk. I hate that too. (laughs) For nine million miles waffling (laughs) about where to go because I do not want to waste the experience or have it be subpar. And I, you know, want to be able to control the outcome of that experience. But that feeling would never stop me from going on a trip or booking a trip or whatever. So in the moment, I do feel this in a smaller micro level, but it wouldn't stop me being like, well, I have the idea of a perfect trip to Paris in my mind So we cannot go until everything is planned because I don't want to risk it being less than perfect. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah. And I think I am that way too. Like, you know, just because this image I have of myself on my wedding day wasn't there, it didn't mean that I I didn't get married. And like, just because I have this fear that having kids wouldn't be the way or, or knowledge, I guess, that having kids wouldn't be the way that I thought it would be. It doesn't mean that I've taken it off the table altogether. I guess it's like, I have enough rationality to know that things are not going to go the way that I expect them to go. And yet still, when they don't, I am like spinning out. (laughs) Like, Why? Why is this happening? But yeah, I totally get what you mean. I think that I have an image of myself in my head or like, I don't know what the right word is. Like the way I think about myself is as a resilient person. So for the most part, I feel like I'm not bothered by like, I will not be able to handle the outcome of how things happen. So it's like, of course, I would like to have a great meal. I would like to not (laughs) have anything bad ever happen to me. But I do think that I don't experience as much preemptive anxiety about things because I think about myself as like a very resilient and capable person. And so in that way, I'm like, I could handle it, I guess. I don't know. Maybe I just I like that's need to be knocked on my, maybe I haven't been knocked on my ass hard <laughs> enough to shake that. I don't want to like tempt the universe here. You know, I also think that like this anger that I feel sometimes when things are not going the way that I want them to go is like an easier emotion for me to experience than like sadness <laughs> or, mm. and so like when I've had hard things happen or when I've lost people or whatever, like oftentimes my first reaction, like emotionally is like, I'm pissed off that that this thing happened that was not supposed to happen. Like I was like, this is not supposed to be derailing my life, which is of course completely selfish, but it's easier to access like me being pissed off at this thing I can't control 
than it is to be like, wow, I'm feeling really deep grief. <laughs> so maybe there's a little bit of that too. Clearly this book has has brought up a lot of intense conversations and feelings, more so than I certainly would have expected having just read the back cover copy before I read the book. Yeah. I hope people listen to this episode that maybe didn't read it because I, I think there's just a lot to think about whether you read it or not. I don't know. Do you think that there's one takeaway that will stick with you this time? Kind of like the three hour painting anecdote? I think that just to stop trying to control things <laughs> and to be nicer to myself when things don't go the way I, I've planned, which is just a goal this year for me in general. What about you? I mean, I think there's no putting the genie back in the bottle of knowing the 4,000 weeks stat. So I think that will oh, yeah, stick that's with there me too. <laughs> for forever. But I do think the idea of the futility of getting everything done is something that I hope sticks with me. And then therefore coming to my daily routine or to-do list or productivity from a place of not what do I have to get done? What are others expecting of me? What do I owe other people? But coming to it with like more, even though I said I disagree with it, like more of the Warren Buffett thing of like, what do I need to do that is most important as opposed to like, I have 10 unread emails that like are asking me to do things. Yeah, same. Well, let's take another ad break before we get into the end matter. So I am personally very picky when it comes to podcasts, and I am also always in search of new recommendations for fun listens to put on while I'm cooking dinner or getting ready for bed. And so today we're here to recommend a podcast that we think our listeners might be into. And that podcast is the Glamorous Trash Podcast with Chelsea Devantes. This podcast recaps and discusses female celebrity memoirs through a thoughtful lens, which is something that I honestly can't imagine our audience being more into. I'm very excited to check this out based on the name and premise alone. But if you need more info, on Valentine's Day 2020, Chelsea began posting about her favorite celebrity memoirs in her Instagram stories with one mission, to show people how powerful it can be when a woman tells her own story. Days after Chelsea's first post, the podcast was born. With over 125 episodes from Celine Dion to Britney Spears to Tina Turner to Rosie Perez, these memoirs deliver all the hot goss while also exploring deep-rooted, nuanced issues like sexual harassment, childhood trauma, fertility, body image, and toxic romances. Yet somehow, society always ignored these women's books, instead branding them as guilty pleasures or trash literature. Which we would never do, of course, but... <laughs> Chelsea is an Emmy-nominated comedian who has written for television shows like Girls 5 Eva and Not Dead Yet and was Jon Stewart's head writer. On each episode of Glamorous Trash, she brings a friend to discuss a celebrity memoir or a moment in pop culture or sometimes the book publishing industry as a whole. Glamorous Trash is a fun, thoughtful, and bookish but chatty podcast, so you can see why we thought you all might love it too. You can find Glamorous Trash anywhere you listen to podcasts. Olivia, it looks like we both have TV-related obsessions. What is yours? Yeah. Mine is kind of an unexpected one, which is the show Trust on Netflix. I've never even heard of this. Oh, okay. Interesting. 
I don't even know why I started watching it, but the premise of it is, I think there's like 12 people in a house and there's this trust of money that every week based on various things goes up or down. It starts at like $250,000, I think. And they can either decide to work together, not vote anyone out, and they split the money evenly, or they can kind of scheme and lie and vote people off. And then, of course, you split it with less people, the number goes off. This is not my thing. Like not a fan of this type of reality television at all. And honestly, it took me maybe two or three episodes to get into. But afterwards, Jake and I were like riveted. I can't recommend this enough. If you like watching shows that like you can talk to whoever you're watching with at the same time about what's going on, like it's a very sort of you're yelling at the TV kind of thing. It is like compulsive, truly wild group of people as usual for Netflix reality shows. But I am uh, really liking it. And I have to wait for the next episode, which is killing me. Tell me about your TV recommendation. So mine's on maybe a different wavelength. So I started... I've seen it. So I have reference. Oh, you have? Yes. Oh, I didn't know this. Okay. So tell us. Tell uh, everyone. I started watching Slow Horses on Apple TV+. Plus. So there's three seasons of it. It's a British spy show. Something that you may not assume based on my personality and reading tastes is that I love a spy drama. Love. Homeland is one of my all-time favorite shows. I love The Diplomat last year. And so I'd heard about this a couple of times and I never watched it. And then I saw an Instagram a few weeks ago that one of my favorite authors, Vari McFarlane, wrote for season five of the show, which isn't out yet. Season four isn't even out yet. But somehow having heard about it a few times, plus that fact was enough for me to want to check it out. And I am loving this show. I watched five out of six episodes of season two last night. I am finding the show really, really addictive in the way that it just like eats time. So it could be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on how much (laughs) you've going on. I loved the first season of the show, but I couldn't get into the second one. I don't know if that's just like an attention span thing, though, maybe. Okay, I think that I couldn't get into the first episode of the second one because I watched the first episode of it last week sometime. And I remember I kept pausing it and I like wasn't that into it. And then once it got more fully started, I sat down and I watched the second episode last night and I was kind of like pausing it and unpausing it and like going on my phone and like doing other things. And then somewhere in that episode, it clicked for me. And then I was like up till one in the morning. Okay. Maybe I'll revisit this. Maybe I will. What are you reading or what have you read? I should say. Well, I'm having the same experience on the book side. I'm just giving myself over to content addictions. And it's so funny because in my five-year journal, this was the time last year that I started reading the Zodiac Academy series. So I feel like there's something about January that just makes me want to fall really deep into a rabbit hole with like something content related. So last week I started the fourth book in the Magnolia Parks universe series. So Daisy Hades and the Great Undoing. And I was reading it and then I was in Boston and I finished it when I got home from Boston. I finished it probably at like 10 o'clock at night and I had a physical copy of the book and it ended and I was like, I need more. Like I like I need more directly into my veins. And I remembered that somebody had emailed me about this and I I thought I had a NetGalley link somewhere in my email and so I immediately needed to go find it. I started the next book. I stayed up till 2:30 in the morning reading it. This series 
is laced with something <laughs> that should be illegal. It just has that addictive book property. And so this one, I've talked about it before. If it hasn't registered, Magnolia Parks is, I would call it Chuck and Blair fan fiction, but instead they are billionaires in London. So it's about this like young social set in London. And it is about the most toxic relationship you can imagine. It sounds intriguing. Is it going to be a show at any point? Or, I Do you know anything about so. the television rights? Because it seems just prime I for a television would, show. Olivia, the way that I would make this whole show, this show my whole personality. And so there's like two kind of concurrent series. So there's the Magnolia books and Magnolia is very fashion-y and she's in this toxic relationship. And then on the other side, there's the Daisy books. And Daisy is the sister of like, I guess the equivalent of like, the person who runs London's mafia. Oh, okay. So like I said, great TV show. Great TV show. And so the Daisy books are interconnected, but it's like so fun because it's like a completely different side of the social set. And like the drama is totally different. And oh my God, I I, I don't want to give any spoilers, but I know people want to know. So I will just say Team Julian. That's all I'll say. All right. Well, I read 4,000 weeks. <laughs> that's, that's the only thing I finished this week, but hopefully I'll have something more interesting to share next week. Well, should we talk about our book club for February? Yes. Reveal it to me live here on the air because I knew what you were considering, but I don't know what the final pick is. So, so we're going a little blind here because I could not get an arc of this book. I tried and I usually oh, I know what it is now. I usually am have a high success rate and I I flopped on this one. But I've been hearing such good feedback. I'm gonna read it anyway. I know so many of our listeners are gonna read it anyway that I think we should just read it together and discuss. So our February book club pick is going to be Good Material by Dolly Alderton. Yes. <laughs> and what's really interesting about this book is that this is a breakup novel. But it's told from a male point of view. So the protagonist is a struggling comedian who breaks up with his girlfriend. His life is on a downslide. And he kind of devotes himself to figuring out what went wrong in his relationship. And I mean, I loved Ghosts by Dolly Alderton, which we read for book club a couple of years ago. I am so fascinated by the fact that it's a male protagonist and I've heard such good things about it that I just, I can't wait to see. I'm so excited. My first Dolly Alderson book. Oh, wow. Okay. You need to go back and read Ghosts too. Okay. I'll add that to my... I mean, not like imminently, but I feel like you would enjoy it. It will help me have more context for the episode. Looking forward to it. Yeah. So we're going to be discussing that on February 28th. It's a leap year. There's a 29th of February this year too. Oh, so grab a copy. It comes out on January 30th and read along with us. And if you want to discuss, I don't know, the brevity of life or what you thought about 4,000 weeks or your need for control in all things, please do uh, in the Facebook group, which is under Battle on Paper Podcast or in our Geneva group, which is also Battle on Paper Podcast. Wait, can I tell you a funny anecdote that really just gave me a laugh? Yes. So I posted on my Instagram story something about the Geneva group and I linked to the Geneva group. And 
somebody wrote back and they were like, this makes so much more sense. I thought that you just had a group of very devoted listeners from Geneva, Switzerland. (laughs) (laughs) Just a group of very blonde (laughs) that we just are constantly talking about. Honestly, if we had a group of very (laughs) devoted listeners from Geneva, Switzerland, it probably would be all we talked about. We will go to you. Just tell us. Oh, that's hilarious. That's so funny. Well, Geneva is an app for sharing and talking and meeting people with common interests. So join us there. And I'm on Instagram at Olivia Mentor. And you can pre-order my book, Such About Influence, which is out June 4th, wherever books are sold. You should do that. And I'm on Instagram at Becca M. Freeman. Bye. Bye. Bye.